0: the San Francisco Experience podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 20, episode 15, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory, and the Future of the World, Talking with Author, Dexter Roberts. Our guest today is Dexter Tiff Roberts, a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. He's an award-winning journalist and frequent commentator on US-China relations. He's the director of China Affairs at the University of Montana's Maureen and Mike Mansfield Center. He joins us from his office in Missoula, Montana. Hi, Dexter, and welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Jim. Thank you for having me today.
0: My pleasure. Dexter, before we launch into your book, tell us about your career as a journalist in China, and where did you learn to speak Mandarin?
1: I started my Mandarin Chinese studies when I was in college, not too far from where you are now. Um, I was at Stanford University. Uh-huh. That was a long time ago, and it was actually so long ago that Stanford did have a good Chinese language program, but it was small. So I started studying Chinese then two years into Stanford. From there, just shortly after graduation, moved to Taiwan and continued studying Chinese in Taiwan. Eventually, after some graduate school in New York, I moved to Beijing and started my career as a journalist then in Beijing, China.
0: You worked there for Bloomberg Businessweek?
1: That's right. So when I first arrived, I was a freelancer, a good start as a journalist. So I started doing that, went to the place where I, where uh, the place the country I'd been interested in forever, where I'd been learning the language, China. From the beginning, I was freelancing for Business Week. Business Week, that quick, very quickly became a a full-time job and some other freelancing I had done stopped to devote myself 100% to Businessweek. And that, I was working for Businessweek for many years. In 2009, Businessweek was purchased or acquired by Bloomberg. And uh, the magazine re- remained the same, but the name became Bloomberg Businessweek. And I, I became part of the Bloomberg News Company then.
0: Fascinating background, exciting career, the stuff that so many young people today uh, can only dream about career opportunities like that. So, but at this point, let's launch into the book. What is the premise of your book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism?
1: Well, one of the questions I'm often asked is, you know, what is the myth? <laughs> There's actually more than one myth as my title my title is The Myth of Chinese Capitalism. Uh, there are at least two that I that I'm really dealing with in the book. And the first is that China is becoming more capitalistic. When I say capitalistic here, it's really shorthand for continuing to open its economy, carry out these reforms that were first launched decades ago under former leader Deng Xiaoping, and becoming a a country with an economy that is more integrated with the world. The reality is, for at least the the last decade or so under the present leader Xi Jinping, that opening, those reforms, which I sort of shorthand as capitalistic, have really stalled. So the the present leader, Xi Jinping, is pursuing a much more state-directed form of an economy, and his goal does not appear to be necessarily linking with the rest of the world. A second myth that I talk about in the book, and I really focus in on this by looking at what I would call the other China, for lack of a better term. And this is hundreds of millions of people that come from the rural part of China, mainly in the western part, many of which become migrant workers and typically had worked in the factories of China. And the myth is that these people who make up you know, some one-half or even maybe slightly more than a half of the people in China are going to join the middle class, as many people in urban China have already done. Mm-hmm. And for a, bunch, and a variety of different reasons that I look at in the book, this is not happening. So we're seeing a widening uh, gap between rich and poor in China, particularly between people from rural China and urban China. The, that second myth, by the way, is really one that has been bought into by the companies, the multinationals of the world. This idea that China's middle class would grow ever larger, and therefore they would have larger and larger markets there in China to sell their products to. And whereas we did see this rapid expansion of the middle class in China, again, I argue in my book that it appears now to have stalled. Mm-hmm.
0: That's, uh, that's an excellent segue into the book itself. The story begins with the Mo family from a remote village in China. How did you meet Mo Rubo? And tell us about his story.
1: Yeah, so the first time I met Mo Rubo was in the factory town of Dongguan, which is uh, down in Guangdong province, not far from Hong Kong. And Dongguan as I, is one of two cities I really focus, or two locations I really focus on in the book. The other is this rural village that, Mo Rupo happens to come from, called Binhua in Guizhou. But I met him uh, in the factory town where he was working, along with another a number of other young people that were also uh, from his village and also working in various factories in, in Dongguan. That was the first time I met uh, Rupo. And then I was later able to meet him uh, a number of times, quite a few times, both in uh, Dongguan, where he still lives today, and also back in his home village where he grew up. So the story of Ru Boa is a very typical one for literally hundreds of millions of young people in China. And those are the hundreds of millions of young people that are born into less privileged circumstances, if you will, in rural China. Uh, Ru Boa dropped out of middle school, uh, never completed high school, certainly didn't go to college uh, because... There were very few opportunities there in the village, uh, mainly a rice-growing part of a very beautiful part of Guizhou, stunning mountains and and, a beautiful place, very little pollution because there's no industry to speak of. uh, But he didn't see that he had many prospects there. So he dropped out of school, uh, first went to a city not far from Shanghai called Ningboa, got a job in a factory there, and then did what is rather typical. He sort of bounced around China. In uh, mainly along the coast, where most of the factories have been located. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're export-oriented. And then ultimately ended up working in this electronics factory owned by a Taiwanese businessman there in Dongguan. And so I met him and uh, some of his fellow villagers over a dinner there, and then later was very lucky to meet him, as I said, in, in the village that he comes from.
0: Now, you continue following Mo Rubo, throughout the book and we'll come back to that in a minute but it's it's very interesting when we talk about migrant workers it's great that you actually took an individual you got to know one of them and you followed him for almost 20 years in his career as he as he moved from the provinces from the rural provinces into the city became a worker in a factory something that of course from where he was coming from China there were, probably were no factories there were, I think in your book you talk about approximately 300 million migrant workers have been recruited from the provinces, from the, say, farms, rural areas into the coastal manufacturing cities. And to your point about the uh, education, I was, uh, I think one of the statistics that you mentioned in your book is that only about one quarter of China's labor force actually graduate from high school. And in fact, you just made the point that Mo Rubo had actually dropped out in middle school, so he would not be a high school graduate. That's very surprising. In fact, you also talk in the book that China's educational attainment for workers is less than you would find in Turkey, Brazil, South Africa. That was quite a surprise to me. I just assumed that that the Opportunity in China was spread right across the board, but it seems as though that opportunity, educational opportunity anyway, hasn't really made its way out to the hinterland and to these migrant workers who come into the big city, but uh, kind of ill prepared with without skills and with poor educations.
1: Yeah, I think that is a surprise for a lot of people that that haven't you know have the opportunity to spend a lot of time in China. What we do hear about is the very real and impressive academic successes of Chinese students in cities like Shanghai. Indeed, Shanghai you know, scores some of the highest uh, on standardized testing. The students there will score some of the highest at, at the highest ranks in the world. But there's this great disparity in education within China. And I should also add that even in cities like Shanghai, if you are the child of a migrant worker uh, you're not going to be you're not going to have easy or, or maybe no access at all to the these public schools that do teach you know very very are, te- are very good at teaching uh, students teaching students and, and, and producing these high achieving students. So you'll have migrant workers in places like Shanghai whose children will not be in the schools there even, even in some cases, If those migrant children are in Shanghai, but the real distinction, again, the real the real gap is when you compare these big urban cities, the cities we think of when we think of modern China with skyscrapers and high speed trains, places like Beijing, Shanghai down in the south, Shenzhen, those places typically will have very good public schools, their public schools, and again, high achieving students. But then you have literally hundreds of millions of young people from rural China who are in far inferior schools. The system in China is such that social welfare costs, including education, are paid by the local governments. And you'll often have uh, local governments with far, far less financial capability than than a city like Shanghai. And they simply just do not, they do not have the money to make very good schools. And that's very much reflected if you look across China. Um, And then also, as I mentioned earlier, there's this, because of that, great gap in education because of the lack of opportunities that have been in the hinterland in places like this little village of Ping and Guizhou where Morupo is from, many of the young people will not even, uh, they won't finish, they certainly won't finish high school and they will jump into a, a factory job, a construction job, or more and more today, uh, a low level service job.
0: One of the things that also surprised me in your book, of course, most of these migrants are, are single. They're young and single when they leave the hinterland and come to the big city to get a job in a factory. But for the few who actually come with their most of them, if they if they do have children, they leave the children behind. And then the children are either taken care of by the parents of the, the worker or they're put in a boarding school out in the hinterland which which has lower standards and even for migrant workers who subsequently get married when they're living in one of these big coastal cities where the factories are the children of migrant workers still cannot go to the public schools say in shanghai beijing or any of the other big cities why is that dexter I mean, why does that extend to their children? I can understand the the opportunity is obviously limited for the recent arrival of the migrant, but their children who are born in Shanghai, Beijing, these these big cities with so much opportunity, why are the children of migrants not permitted to participate in those elite schools and that better education system?
1: Yeah, so this comes to one of a couple, what I describe as legacy policies that, that even as China has developed its economy and become much wealthier on the coast, still exist today. And I call them legacy policies because they date back actually much earlier, to the, actually to the Mao Zedong era. And the, the one that I really do focus in on is something called the household registration policy, or in Chinese the Hukou policy mm-hmm. and the household registration policy. Uh, some people have compared it to almost like an internal passport. And what it is, is a little document that shows uh, where you were born, but more importantly, where your parents were born. It shows things like your education level level. It shows, you know, what ethnic group you're part of, whether you're a Han Chinese, which is the more majority or a, or an ethnic minority in China. And so this is a document that is very important to people's lives and ultimately their careers. And what, what's important about it is it does not bar people from traveling around China. Mm-hmm. That's why you have 350 million migrants. Actually, during the Mao, Mao Zedong era, it was used. Bar people from going, leaving the countryside and coming to the cities. Mm-hmm. Mao wanted to push rapid industrialization. He needed people in the countryside you know, producing cheap agricultural products and food to support the urban people that would that would work in the in the industrialization effort. So this was this was Mao's idea. Now today, the, it no longer bars where you move, and that's why you have hundreds of millions of migrants moving around China. Mm-hmm. What it still does is it ties all of your social welfare benefits to the place where, not where you were born, but where your parents were born. And so when social welfare benefits, obvious things like medical care, uh, your pension, but also the access for your children to education. And so what it says is if you want to get affordable health care, you actually shouldn't be going to, What's probably a much better uh, hospital or medical clinic in the city? You should be doing it back where you are from, or actually where your parents are from. Same thing with your pension. Now, where it gets, where it affects the children is they do not have the right because their hukou is tied to their parents, who mm-hmm. are from the countryside. They do not have the right to go to public schools in the cities. Hmm. And the public schools are the the, the really strong schools in China. That leaves them two choices. One is these private schools have sprung up in the cities to cater to the children of migrant workers. These are not the private schools we think of in the West and in the U.S. These are schools that typically are not very good at all. And often they actually cost a fair amount of money. And so migrant workers want their children to live with them will actually pay for their kids to go to these not very good, actually somewhat expensive private schools, whereas your kid from an urban family with this urban household registration can go to the public schools. The the second choice for the children of migrants is to go back to the countryside, as you mentioned a moment ago. And that has created this phenomenon, which, as you said, they will be raised by by their grandparents, who are often illiterate, Hardly, you know, hardly well prepared to raise these young children as migrants or they will go into these impersonal, not very good quality boarding schools. And this has become such a frequent choice for migrant migrant children that they have a phrase that that they use in China, which is left behind children. There are, by some estimates, over 100 million children in China who are, quote, left behind, who grow up separated almost all the time from their parents, and there are real social mental and and even there's a lot of different costs and uh, negative impacts that you mm-hmm. see on these young people who are uh, because of this household registration system uh, are forced to grow up separate from their parents in most cases.
0: let's move on to the ownership of land and the sale of land or the rental of land now we've all heard about again in the large cities for the residents the legal residents of Beijing, Shanghai, the big cities, who have a HOKU, a registration that says that they're entitled to all the benefits and social services of a citizen of Beijing, of uh, Shanghai, and these are all Chinese citizens, whether they're migrants from the hinterland or That's whether right. they're residents of legal residents of Shanghai, Beijing, etc. We've read about the real estate speculation, for instance, in uh, apartments and condominiums in the big cities in China, where uh, where middle class. Uh, Chinese people are able to buy an apartment for, I don't know, uh, say $50,000 and turn around and sell it for $100,000 and, you know, do, to do very well out of that real estate transaction. But when you go into the hinterland, farmland, tell us about that because that same ability to actually sell the land on the part out in the hinterland, sell agricultural land or to rent it at a market rate, that doesn't apply to residents out in the hinterland in the agricultural areas. And so folks out there aren't able to make the same kind of profitable real estate sales as folks in the city. Is that correct, Dexter?
1: It is correct. And as a matter of fact, that dual distinction between rural and urban land people call the dual land system is probably the number one reason for the the very large and growing wealth inequality in china because as you say urbanites with the proper household registration, the hukou are able to buy and sell apartments. And we've seen a, a vast appreciation in property values until recently in China. And they've been able to become very, very wealthy doing that. By contrast, in, in the rural parts of China with agricultural land, uh, you have a different classification for the land. It is, again, a legacy policy that date back, dates back to the Mao era. It's called the collective land system. And whereas The land in the countryside used to be owned by an actual collective, like a commune Mm -hmm. uh, under the Mao era. Obviously, those communes no longer exist, but the land ownership in the countryside still, the power resides in the the collective, which actually happens to be local officials. Mm -hmm. So what happens is if a rural person wants to rent or sell their land, first Mm -hmm. of all, they're pretty much unable to do that at anything close to market rates. But what they need to do is they need they need to work with a local official. Local officials have the right to, in effect, redistrict land from agricultural use to industrial use or commercial real estate use. The farmer or the migrant worker can't do that. Uh, so what happens is the, the village chiefs or the township officials step in. They typically will buy land from a local farmer at a nominal rate for virtually nothing. Then they will turn around and redistrict it, sell it on to real estate developers, or rent it out uh, at, a, at a very significant profit to themselves. And, you know, people ask why does this system still exist in China? Uh, there's a number of reasons. Some people will say that. It's somehow in the minds of the of the party. It's sort of a, a tie back to their their previous past. They have this sort of this fit lease that they're still Socialist, communist, something because the, the land is defined officially as collective in the countryside. Probably far more important a reason is that local governments in China, which I mentioned earlier, are the ones that are responsible for social welfare costs. Mm-hmm. You have to pay a lot of that's that doesn't come from the central government. They rely to a great degree for local revenues on these land proceeds. So up to one third of one half of local revenues in, say, a township, or a city is going to come from these land proceeds. And they need that money to pay their civil servant salaries. They need that money, if they're doing the right thing, to build a strong social safety net and create a pension system. They need it to maintain the roads and make the local schools, even if they're not very good. So China really has a dilemma today. They, if they were to reform that dual land system, it would take away a key source of income for local governments, So that's a big problem. On the other hand, they have this growing wealth inequality tied to the dual land system, the distinction between urban and rural land, which is a huge problem as well economically for China and potentially socially uh, destabilizing down the road.
0: While we're on the subject of land, there are a couple of fascinating statistics in uh, your chapter, chapter number three, The Land, where you talk about the population of China, at 1.6 billion, whatever it is, that uh, that represents one-fifth of the world's population. However, the land of China only represents about one-tenth of the world's arable available land. So 20% of the world's population is Chinese, but... China only occupies 10% of the world's usable land. And while we look at a map of China, and it looks it's a vast country, only Canada, Russia are bigger than China. So much of China is deserts, mountains, particularly in the West. They were fascinating statistics that really put the landmass of China into perspective. And once again, kind of coming back to the inability of rural people working the land to enjoy the same kind of capitalistic uh, opportunity to sell land as a city dweller could sell their condominium it kind of condemns the rural dweller to continuous poverty if he doesn't have the same opportunities to to profit from his land the way a city dweller would and he can't go to live in the city because he doesn't have because he doesn't have the hoku to do it
1: yeah this is a tremendous challenge and as you point out this is this is not new in many ways China has always faced this reality of a large and growing population and very scarce arable resources so and again as you said there are vast deserts and mountains in mainly in western China where it is very difficult to plant crops so this has always been something that Chinese leaders have dealt with going back to the dynasties one of Mao Zedong's to, you know, most important initial reforms was land reform. What a previous leader, Sun Yat-sen, the father of modern China, called land to the tiller. Mao, didn't. he did land reform and then he took it back and uh, converted it into communes, basically took the land back from the farmers after giving it to them. But this is something that has always been an issue for China and it continues to be today. The dual land system we were just talking about, one of its Results of of that system. The the big one, of course, is the fact again that rural Chinese cannot really benefit from the land, even when typically they will have a small plot that belongs to them. But if they sell it, again, they can't do that. They can't sell it for commercial or industrial use, and they have really only one customer, which is the local government, which means they they don't have to. The local government doesn't have to pay very much. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a huge challenge. And then the other thing we see in China is very fragmented agricultural system. So you have very, very small plots mm-hmm. associated typically with a farmer or a migrant worker. And there are you know inefficiencies related to that as well. Again, the farmers and the, the migrant workers typically don't have a lot of money. So that means even if they were to want to invest into, say, better irrigation systems or new seeds or something to try to improve their yield in most cases they really can't do that Mm -hmm. so this is another a very unfortunate uh, reality when you look at at the land system in china
0: let's move on to the robots uh, chapter number five you talk about one of the the newer policies economic policies in china the made in china 2025 As a result of the 300 million migrant workers having moved to the cities over the last 20, 25 plus years, as a result, the Chinese manufacturing costs have gone up. And in fact, now it's relatively expensive. Chinese labor costs are relatively expensive. And not competitive with say Mexico or Malaysia which actually have lower labor costs than China. So as a result, China is in the process of trying to automate its factories and turning to robots. And I was again, I was very surprised to see that China's manufacturing facilities are have very few robots in comparison to other Asian countries which are manufacturing powerhouses like Japan, South Korea, and some of the uh, some of the others talk to me about that this this trend now to automate the factory floor they don't factories don't need the millions and millions of migrant workers that they currently have uh, give us a sense about that transition that we're beginning to see in China away from labor intensive manual Uh, workers being replaced by automation and robots and what's going to happen to the 300 million migrant workers who are there in these in these factories in these coastal cities
1: well if you step back just a little bit you know the the made in china or factory to the world model of, uh, of economic development for china which supplied us you know with all with the our cheap iphones and inexpensive toys before and clothing and sort of things you would get in a big box retailer in the US. So much of that produced in China. That was really built built upon this belief that there would be a constant supply of very cheap workers that you would pay very low wages mm-hmm. to. And frankly that allowed us consumers in the West to benefit with low prices. That really began to change quite a few years ago, in part because of one-child policy and other earlier birth-restrictive policies that reduced the number of young people that were being born in China, which has now really come to a head. This year is the or last year the the census people, state Statistics Bureau in China has just announced that the population shrank for the first time in many many decades, hmm. and the workforce has begun shrinking. So that really started to happen a while ago. It's really become very much a reality today, and. Uh, What does that mean? It it means, as you said, that workers in places like Malaysia or Mexico have actually become more affordable, which is something a lot of people really didn't ever imagine happening. That's a big problem for production in China for obvious reasons. Obviously, if you're trying to sell to the U.S. market and you're located in Mexico, uh, that's quite much an easier logistics prospect to get the goods across the border, a land border into the U.S. as opposed to sailing them across the ocean from China. So. Uh, China's trying to find ways to remain competitive. One thing to keep in mind is China has decided that it will not see the hollowing out of its industry. And you have some very smart technocratic officials in China that have looked at other parts of Asia, didn't like what they saw, particularly Mm -hmm. Japan. Uh, a very senior official who's recently retired named Liu actually studied the example of Japan and saw the hollowing out of industry there and said, we're not going to let this happen in China. So what is the solution as, as wages become more expensive? Uh, it's automation and robotics. So China really has a conscious strategy of trying to automate more and more of its factories. They actually have put subsidies in place both at the provincial level and at local government, municipal levels to give factories subsidies if they put in more robots and automate more. There's actually a policy that is literally called replace worker with robot and mm. so this is something that's really been a conscious choice and at the same time they've also had subsidies for robot producers because they want to produce their own ro- robots as well so china's trying to they're not trying to keep manufacturing static they, they they're automating it they also want to move up the the value chain they're moving to higher technology products they're not so interested in things like making textiles or toys anymore which really, the, the, a lot of that industry has moved on to places like Vietnam or other parts of Southeast Asia, where there still are cheaper workers. Uh, but China is trying to instead uh, move up the value chain with its technology, produce more technologically complicated products, and use above all more and more automation. Mm-hmm. So, the the issue here is, in on the one hand, this is a you know a great strategy. On the other hand, they may have actually gotten a little bit ahead of themselves to the point where. Uh, workers who might still be willing to do a job in a factory uh, may find themselves out of work now, mm-hmm. uh, even even at a wage a wage that the factory might be able to accept because again, that there's been this push including by the government, to drive faster and faster automation. One big trend we've seen in the last few years is these 300 million some migrant workers starting to a big portion of them starting to return to their villages going back to the countryside. And this has actually been encouraged by the government as well. They've tried to set up tax benefits in some cases for migrants to return and start small businesses where they're from. In Guizhou, which uh, where the, the Moes are from, and, and Ru Boa that I write about, there's been a big push to try to do uh, ecotourism, what we would call ecotourism, mm-hmm. or uh, countryside tourism. As I said, there's very little industry there. It's a beautiful stunning mountain scenery uh, great great hot spicy food and so they've tried to they've tried to create a tourism place where they would lure wealthier chinese from the cities to come back and work there but that's unclear how well how well that worked because there's so many other places where wealthy chinese can take their tourist dollars and there's, and there's arguably, arguably been too many um, Hotels created in places like Guajo to cater to that. So you have a situation where in the countryside, you may be seeing growing unemployment amongst migrant workers mm-hmm. that don't have jobs in the cities anymore, but are trying to go home to to uh, work there. Um, and then in the cities, there are certainly migrant workers that stay there, increasingly there in service jobs. Mm-hmm. But the problem there is they typically are not very well paying, some cases even dangerous to their Mm -hmm. well-being service jobs so one of the most common is motorcycle delivery person and so they would rush around the city as fast as they can they get paid by number of deliveries delivering everything from you know packages to businesses or homes to like uh, hot meals you can get a you can get a hot meal in, in a city like beijing in you know 10 minutes because of these migrant workers who zip around the city and unfortunately sometimes get in, in motorcycle accidents.
0: Let's come back to Mo Rubo, who we met at the outset of this podcast, who was the, the young man, the young migrant worker who made his way to the coastal city of Dongguan to make his, uh, his fortune. And uh, tell us about him, because is he moving back to his, uh, his village? Has he opted to stay in the coastal city? He now has a daughter. Tell us about him and how these policies are affecting him personally.
1: Yeah, so he is one of those migrant workers who, I mean, back from the first time I met him in the year 2000, was determined to not go back to the countryside. And so he stuck with that. He's uh, living in a small apartment that he rents with his wife and his daughter. His daughter's, I think, eight years old now. uh, Not far from the factory that he was working at when I first met him. Still in Dongguan, the the, uh, manufacturing city there down near Hong Kong. What he's done, he and his wife run a small... uh, athletic apparel sourcing business Mm. so they don't actually produce the athletic clothes and other athletic apparel but they uh, source it from factories and they sell it online they run the their little office i visited them uh, I guess it was before the pandemic, so it's been a little while. But I visited them there. They they run the office out of their own home, and it's it's not easy at all. The business is not easy. Mm-hmm. They have been unable to earn enough money to buy their own place, despite the fact that he and his wife have been in Dongguan for over 20 years now. Mm-hmm. There are restrictions related to household registration that make it harder to buy an apartment in the city if you, if you uh, are not actually from there and you have a you have a hukou from the countryside. Mm-hmm. And then the big issue, and this was really a big one when I visited him a few years ago, was what to do about his daughter's education. Right. Uh, Rubo and his wife were adamant that they were not going to see her become what I mentioned earlier as a left behind child mm-hmm. and grow up away from them. So whereas they could have sent her back to to the rural Guadalco countryside and probably put her in one of those impersonal boarding schools, they were not going to do that. And that left them really only the option of paying for one of these relatively expensive, not very good private schools that cater to the children of migrant workers. So they were struggling to... Get enough money, the monthly uh, monthly tuition to pay for her in school. They've, they've done it, but it hasn't been easy. Interesting to see. Uh, again, someone who I, as I mentioned, Rupwa, very ambitious from the very beginning when I met him over 20 years ago. Determined to stay in the city, determined to not be a, a factory worker and start his own business. Well, he succeeded in a number of ways. You know, he stayed in the, he stayed in the city. He's created his own business, but because of the household registration. Uh, Life is very difficult for him and his family.
0: Dexter, at this point, what does the future hold for Chinese capitalism? Because certainly over the last 30 years, we've seen this economy rise from basically a subsistence economy uh, making cheap toys and other trinkets that were sold to the west graduating to iphones and more sophisticated manufacturers as they were able to bring 300 million migrant workers into the cities and now those migrant workers uh, their salaries the labor costs are are no longer competitive on a global scale so robots are coming in what's the future for China and their system of capitalism with this vast hinterland of, of poor people out in the rural areas versus the opportunities to create wealth and make wealth for legal city dwellers in the big cities. What, what's the future for Chinese capitalism?
1: It's interesting. The officials in charge of China really know the direction they need to go in. And there's been now for at least a decade, this realization that the old factory to the world model uh, no longer works. And it doesn't work for a number of reasons. One is, a big one is uh, investment by uh, the state into creating this export-driven economy where uh, it has actually led to a a dangerous buildup of debt in the economy. So the economy is deeply reliant on debt. It's well over 200% of GDP, I believe, Mm. which can be destabilizing. And sort of the logic, if you will, behind that was, as the economy starts to slow, let's open the spending spigots, let's pump more money into these factories, let's pump more money into infrastructure, and that will create jobs. And it worked for for quite a while, Uh, but now we're seeing diminishing returns on that spending, we're seeing growing debt, um, and on the global scale, because of the tense relations that China has with countries like the United States, they feel, and I think they're right, that they cannot rely so much more on selling their goods to the rest of the world. What they really want to see is a very, very large domestic market, where where all Chinese people open their wallets and spend and drive economic growth in that way. Well, that actually gets to this challenge we've been talking about, which is the great and growing inequality the system through the hukou that creates sort of a two-tier uh, status of people, those in the city who are wealthier and better off, those who are not be- not doing well on the countryside are much less prone to spend money. And that really is an obstacle to creating this new household consumption-driven economy rather than an export-driven economy. Mm-hmm. So China knows it needs to make that transition. They, they frankly are not they're not making much progress at all. We've seen growing inequality. We've seen growing in empl- unemployment amongst young people, amongst migrant workers, as we come out of the pandemic in China. And at the same time, something the government's been talking about for years, which is gradual reform of these two legacy policies we talked to, uh, talked about before: the household registration policy and also the dual land policy. Uh, there's been it's it's not happening. Mm-hmm. They're not making progress on that. I would argue, and I do in my in my book, that in order to actually create a more household consumption-driven economy, you need to find a way to bring these hundreds of millions of rural people and migrant workers fully into the Chinese economy. And you can't do that as long as you continue to have the household registration system, as long as you, as they still the you have the dual land system where they struggle to to actually.
0: Uh, create value out of the, the land they may hold. Dexter, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, any closing thoughts for our listeners who follow China, who perhaps want to invest in China? Any closing thoughts?
1: Well, you know, as I back to the back to the beginning of our conversation, I do think that it is a myth, as in my title, that China will continue to mint an ever larger middle class. And my Uh, experience from being a business journalist in China for more than two decades is that's sort of the working assumption of almost all foreign investors that come into China, that the market will just keep getting bigger. And I'm afraid the way things are going now, that is not happening. So I think that's something that the multinationals of the world and potential investors in China need to be aware of. Another thing we haven't talked about, but which is very relevant, particularly for investors, is what I call the Xi Jinping's politics in command economy. And politics in command was a a Mao era slogan, which talked about how ideology should be first and foremost above things like economics. And uh, I would say, unfortunately, and this is not good for foreign investors, but in particular, it's not good for the Chinese people. There's a growing sort of return to that attitude where party and ideology sort of trumps economics. And This has a big impact, for example, on the private sector in China and private entrepreneurs who face all sorts of challenges, including being disappeared by the authorities in various corruption investigations, which may, in many cases, be trumped up efforts to lessen their power or to to the benefit of state-owned enterprises. Um, And it's not good news as well for foreign investors in China. As we've seen, there's been a series of crackdowns just in the last few months on uh, American companies, including Bain, Bain Consulting or Bain & Company, the consulting house, uh, Mintz, which is a New York-based due diligence firm, semiconductor companies like Micron out of Boise, Idaho, all of them, in one way or another, have been affected by this more politics-in-command mm. vision of, of economy that Xi Jinping favors. So I think that's something we all need to watch carefully. The point I made earlier, this is bad news, I'm afraid, for the people of China, because it means uh, a less vibrant economy and less opportunity for everyone going forward within China.
0: Dexter, The Economist described The Myth of Chinese Capitalism as one of the best books of 2020. Where can our listeners buy a copy? You can go
1: straight to the the publisher's website, which is St. Martin's Press. So you would go to the website of the parent company, Macmillan. And search for it there. You can find it on independent bookstores. Uh, I still see it around, which is wonderful. So you can go to your local bookstore. I believe strongly believe in supporting your local independent bookstore. So you could go there, and if they don't have it on the shelves, they ask for it, and they'll order it for you. Um, and that's probably, I would say, I would, I, I think, is the best way to to get a copy of the book.
0: Tell us about your newsletter.
1: Yeah. So for about three years now, or a little more than three years, I, I've had a newsletter. It's called Trade War. I, I began during the actual trade war during the previous U.S. administration, uh, but it's sort of outgrown its title. It's a look at the economic and business, all the economic and business news, and a lot of political news, too. I mentioned uh, under Xi Jinping, the politics and command economy of the week in China. It's, it's published under the uh, on the Substack platform, if you search mining, Dexter Roberts, and Trade War, it will come up. And uh, yeah, it comes out every Sunday. There's a free version, which is great. And if someone, a reader becomes very interested and they want to see more, uh, then see the whole thing. It's got a paywall in it. They can pay, I think it's $8 a month, and and, and get it uh, there as well. That's sort of what I really focused on now uh, until I get around to perhaps doing a, another book down the road at some someday.
0: And Dexter, how can our listeners follow you?
1: Well, I have my own website, which is just www.dexterroberts.com.
0: And then I continue to
1: be quite active on Twitter. My Twitter address is at D-I-F-F, and then my last name, Roberts. So that's, that's a good place to find me as well.
0: Okay, listeners. The Twitter handle is at D like David, T like Tom, I, F like Frank, F like Frank, Roberts at d roberts that's the uh, that's his uh, twitter handle facebook instagram linkedin any of those yes
1: instagram is also the same address at d tiff d ro- t i f f roberts and so that would be another good place to to find me as well that tends to be more beautiful pictures from western <laughs> montana where i live however.
0: well dexter i want to thank you very much for joining us today fascinating pulling back of the curtain on what's really going on behind the scenes in the Chinese economy. And we don't often get to have this perspective. So thank you for sharing this with us and hope to have you back when you write that second book.
1: Well, thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity. Delighted to have a chance to appear on, on your podcast.
0: My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 400 as we continue to mark our third anniversary Listen to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, 19 platforms in total. And make sure to subscribe and join our audience that spans 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.